Hello everybody, welcome back to Hypothesis, I'm Amandine and I'm Killian and today we're talking about the story of life slash the origins of life slash where life came from ish. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty big stuff. Yeah, because usually we look at little stuff even though I know you are going to probably be doing molecular stuff. Yeah, I'm going to get a little bit technical and hopefully yeah. not scare everyone. My stuff is more bigger picture, earth size. Yeah, yeah we'll get into enough. it. <laughs> So yeah, I guess I'll start by just giving a very quick overview of some of the kind of things we're going to talk about. So uh, basically, as a lot of you probably know, the world started off with no life, an abiotic world. Um, unless you creationists out there, we won't get into that though. Oh yeah, uh, this is the biological story of life. Yes. Quick disclaimer. Yes. The true story as we know it, so um, far. We might need to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is a prebiotic world which is rich in organic building blocks, so it's like what could have been used to possibly form life. And then there's the RNA world, so RNA came before DNA, possibly, hypothesis time. Um, <laughs> and then DNA replaced RNA as the genetic material for life, and then you have, following that, the classic central dogma, where DNA makes RNA, makes protein, and then you have life as you know it, as we know it, kind of, anyway. Yeah. Or, uh, very primitive forms at the start, obviously, and then... Uh, gaining in complexity. So I suppose we also have to talk about what exactly is life. Yeah. Um, and I think I might have mentioned earlier on this podcast that conference that I was at two years ago. It's had quite an impact on my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the uh, Schrodinger What Is Life conference. I don't know if that's like sad or like impressive. I can't decide. <laughs> uh, a little bit of both, we'll say. Um, so essentially this conference was based on when Erwin Schrodinger, you know, Schrodinger's cat Schrodinger, famous as a physicist, but also dabbled in biology and did it quite well. Um, he gave a series of lectures at Trinity uh, called What is Life that he then turned into a book. And he made some really interesting predictions about biology, despite yeah. being a physicist, which is very annoying. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. He just like nailed biology first try. Um, so one thing he did was he linked life with information. So he sort of predicted this idea of DNA, even kind of predicted the structure to like a scary amount of accuracy yeah. before we'd even known what DNA was. Because he said there must be some way of, you know, uh, passing on information between mm -hmm. biological organisms. You know, in things we observe, it's pretty obvious that there's some kind of information being transferred. That's why, you know, people look like their parents and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he also said that life was uh, associated with energy and fighting entropy. Like, why is it that we're not all wasting away? So, for those who don't know, there's this chemical idea of entropy. Yeah, I was going to say, you're yeah, right. Yeah, it, it's a kind of a big concept in chemistry. If you ever did any thermodynamics, first of all, well done. And second of all, you probably cried a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but entropy is the idea of uh, things becoming more disordered over time, essentially. Yeah. That the universe tends towards disorder in general. So, for something uh, that's a bit disordered, like let's say a world with no life, to suddenly have order to have cells and structures forming within those cells that's sort of going against entropy so schrodinger knew that knowing about life was trying to figure out how did it overcome uh, this tendency for entropy yeah. for, for things to be disordered so there has to be a lot of energy put in for that to happen and that's something we're going to touch on later about energy and life um but yeah that's kind of the the broad sort of uh definition of of life at, at least according to schrodinger we have now, other ideas of what we define as life, like, for example, there's a whole debate in science over whether viruses are alive. Yeah, because, that is a fun debate. Yeah, because they rely on other things to live. Like, unless a virus can get inside of another cell, 
it can't reproduce. Yeah. So therefore, is it alive? Um, big questions. To know. Probably not <laughs> going to be answered today. But, no. Because <laughs> uh, even the professionals are debating that one. So then how do you sort of experimentally look at the origin of life? It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, one, one thing we were taught about in first year, it's a very famous experiment, the Miller-Urey experiment, yeah. where they essentially tried to create um, the different things that would be found on a very early Earth yeah, to see could you spontaneously create life. Yeah, the same conditions, like atmospheric conditions, like what minerals or whatever. Exactly, so they, they stuck loads of things into this sort of experimental setup that they kind of had isolated from the rest of the room. Uh, which was they had water, they had electrodes that were firing the sort of simulated lightning. Yeah. Um, they had CO2 and they had sunlight because they wanted UV rays and that kind of thing. Smart. And amazingly, they could, after a period of time, they could detect sugars, lipids, which are like fats, purines and pyrimidines, which are... Like uh, what make up DNA. What make up DNA, yeah. And, and supposedly all 20 amino acids as well. So, which, which make up proteins. Yeah so, yeah, so it's amazing that you're already getting some of the building blocks for life while you're not actually getting anything replicating or anything that can actually be defined as life. You have the things there that yeah. in the right way could make up life. Um, and then if you added phosphate to that, you could actually make ATP, which is the main energy carrier in cells. Um, yeah. And you biochemists out there will know all about ATP. Uh, <laughs> shout out to you. <laughs> um, so I think uh, then we're, we're going to talk a bit about then oxygenated worlds. So the world started with very little oxygen. Yeah. I think Amity's going to go a little bit more into this kind of thing, maybe. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> and then, so when oxygen came around, uh, there was like this rapid oxidation around the world where you suddenly had oxygen all over the place. Um, and a lot of life died, 99%. Yeah. Because of, of life oxygen died. is, well, it was very toxic to something that can't break it down. I don't know if it's breaking yeah. down is the right word. Who doesn't yeah, know how if, to if use it? If you can't usually deal with oxygen, it, yeah. you don't like it. It's very reactive yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, so, but then that 1% of life that did survive, a lot of them were extremophiles. They could survive at these extremes of like oxygen, extreme heat and that kind of thing. Um, so a lot of people think that life as we know it has evolved from those. But of course, you know, life was existed before that but yeah. then obviously when there's a bottleneck and a lot of life was killed yeah. then we have to start again from what's yeah, left over exactly so uh, yeah, yeah like that's the thing a lot of the time yeah we start off with them um, the thing is as well sorry first of all we don't really know anything for certain no like, there's a lot no of this way of is read i don't hi- i don't hypotheses think... yeah yes <laughs> plural of hypothesis for those who don't know um, yeah, I don't think there's any way of really, truly proving anything or like how it started or where it came mm, from. I don't know whatever. about that. I, how I, can you know? I think... I don't uh, think you can know. I think eventually you could come up with an uh, experimental setup and maybe not know for certain, but have a very, very, very strong idea. Of what? Where I'm gonna, came I'm, from, you I, mean? I'm going to talk a, in a little bit about some experiments I that are mean, kind of running. Like better. what, where we came from, even like from what first organism to like the next thing to the first vertebrate to the next like yeah. you can never know and like maybe there was a fossil of like you mm. know the most ancient ancestor but like that fossil would be in a rock and then what if that rock gets accidentally thrown into a volcano and then yeah. it gets melted down and then your fossils like i just mm. there's so many factors oh yeah i think there's a lot of things we'll never know for sure but yeah. i think some of the fundamentals of how i think we can make can a really begin. good guess yes exactly a good guess but um so yeah i'm just going to go through some of the guesses that we have made i suppose <laughs> Um, and so we were talking about, you know, the first forms of life, like how would that have looked? I don't know how, 
all those building blocks we were talking about would have formed together to create the first cell, but the first cell was prokaryotic, so it didn't have a nucleus. It just had its DNA floating about, which we kind of talked about before. Mm. Just vibing, as Killian <laughs> loves to say. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was around 3.5 billion years ago. And I'm throwing out dates that I kind of think are right. They could obviously be really wrong. And also, what's a billion years when you're talking about yeah. like this kind of thing? It's very hard to visualise. Yeah, it is. It's so difficult. Like I was just saying to Kane earlier how like when you know you're in secondary school and you're learning about history, you're learning about the world wars and like stuff like that, and you're like, whoa, that was so far like long ago in the past. And then you're looking at this and you're like, oh no, that was so recent. Like this yeah. was really long ago in the past. So yeah, like we said, the first cell was prokaryotic. There was no nucleus. Um, it was also a single cell. There wasn't mm. like cells grouped together, working together. It was just one on its own. Um, and like, as we mentioned previously, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, and Well, no free oxygen, basically, floating about. And so the first uh, life forms probably didn't live, most likely didn't live off of oxygen, same way we do. And as Killian also mentioned, like things like extremophiles. So one mm. sort of guess that people are making is that they were thermophiles. So that's they can live um, in areas with really high temperatures. So like the black smokers in the mid-ocean ridge, maybe. Mm. And they also hypothesized that it was all in the water. There was nothing on land. Um, mm. It was all in the sea because I think it's because the UV... Because there was no oxygen, there was no ozone layer. So the UV rays were like really strong and... Mm. I, something about that I think yeah, and the water maybe dispersed those to an extent yeah and it was yeah effects. exactly yeah. and it was also that um, like there was rocks being eroded and stuff like that by water and so there was minerals in the water so they could ah, feed yes. off minerals yeah. in the water that kind of idea um, but then after a while things learned to photosynthesize so that's sort of making its own food or its own energy um, but so I, this, I was also mentioning this earlier that the way we, well, the way we know photosynthesis at the moment is like you take in CO2 and you kind of give out, give out oxygen. But there was, um, they think that there was a way of photosynthesizing that used sunlight to break down other chemicals mm. and that didn't lead to the release of oxygen so that that could have been a form of life. Um, but then once the photosynthesis that we know took off, um, that was in cyanobacteria. So they took in CO2 from the environment and they could use the sunlight to break it down, get energy, and they released oxygen. And that's what started leading to the oxygen. Yeah, because the thing the is, there was so much CO2 around yeah. that then once this caught on, it became very popular. Those organisms did very well. Yeah. So then you go from having loads of CO2 to like everyone using the CO2 yeah. and suddenly it's all oxygen. It's also not catching on. Well, it is catching well, on. It's the same with like the words. I'm always like, the words yeah. catching I, on. I'm as simplifying in, it too much. <laughs> no, you're right. No, you're right. As in, but it's those ones that would have survived. Exactly. As opposed to like it's, everything. Because I It's actually, not like other things learned after they saw, oh, I should do that too. Yeah. It's just those, the ones those, that could do it survived and maybe diverged to other species and yeah. that kind of thing. I'm pretty yeah. sure this this could be false, but I, I think that the cyanobacteria and like this type of photosynthesis is the only one that happened. Like that's the only bacteria that developed this method of photosynthesizing okay. that we so, see today. So this also the other methods evolved independently, you're saying yeah. they didn't arise from the same Yes. Well okay. I don't know if they yeah. did arise independently or not. Okay. I'm just saying that the way of breaking down CO two to release O two oxygen yeah it's like yeah unique what a lovely word (laughs) hey unique yeah 
And so the cyanobacteria lived underwater and um, they lived on the sea floor and they actually kind of started like coming together in like clumps and like filaments and they made these things called microbial mats. So they lived on like the continents where like the continent came into the sea. So it was like shallow water. So it was warm and... um, (laughs) Sorry, can you just make yeah, a face? Sorry, I just, thought, just when you said microbial mats, I was like, you could describe a lot of like bath mats <laughs> like that. <laughs> I would say, like, I often don't clean this very often. Anyway, maybe germ. <laughs> I, like I, I, don't, I don't even use a bath mat. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I don't have a microbial mat. <laughs> but yeah, and they form. Uh, they end up actually forming like a dome shaped structures. It's like the, the bacteria grow and then it's like silt and stuff lands on them and then more can grow on top and they end up forming domes. And I think it, they're called stromatolites. I think they're like, you can find them in Australia now. You can see them. They're like fossil. I don't know if they're called fossil. I think they're fossil, surely okay. if they're like. But yeah, um, so that's pretty cool. Um, and so that basically was like, gave loads of oxygen into the world and that like we said killed a load of things but it also sort of paved the way for lots of other things to develop and grow and um led to obviously more free oxygen in the atmosphere the formation of like ozone layers and the formation of early eukaryotes which are a little bit more complex complex yeah so yeah. they're not prokaryotic they're it's the opposite yeah, so eukaryotic means it has a nucleus essentially yeah and, and it has other more complex traits that bacteria just have not been able to mm-hmm. replicate at all yeah know? and i think you're going to talk about yeah, uh, yeah. i definitely love to go into that so just uh <laughs> for context earlier today when i was doing some research for this uh this podcast i went down a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> Uh, I started watching loads of YouTube videos, especially ones uh, where Nick Lane was speaking. So Dr. Nick Lane, he wrote a book called The Vital Question, which uh, I know everyone in our year in biology was told to read in like first year. The amount of people that did was probably quite low. Um, (laughs) Because to be be honest, it is quite a heavy book. I tried to read it in first year and I remember being like, I don't think I understand this. And it was only a year or two later when I picked it up again. I was like, okay, this is actually really cool. But uh, I do think you do need a bit of a science background to get through it. Or maybe just more motivation than I did in first year. Um, Anyway, so this guy, Nick Lane, has this... uh, He has sort of his own hypothesis for how complex life evolved and sort of what it depended on and and he thinks it's all about energy it's Mm -hmm. all about bioenergetics and this thing called oxidative phosphorylation and which is something you learn in second year i'm not going to go into too much detail (laughs) and amandine's looking at me like do not go into that no they're just big words they're just big words (laughs) yes uh, they're big words essentially it's how complex cells make energy um, and I'm going to go a little bit into, the, into that without yeah. hopefully confusing people. Amandine, I hope you'll stop me if you think I'm going too yeah, far no, at any point. <laughs> I'll interrupt, um, I'm so good at that. <laughs> uh, so one thing I think also that's important to say is like when we talk about things being related, like even um, how related a eukary- eukaryotic organism is to a prokaryote or anything like that, like how do we know how related something is? That's something that I think unless you're yeah. in biology, you don't really hear about too much. So there's this whole field called phylogenetics where you're looking at relatedness of yeah. different organisms through their genetics. So um, you could obviously just look at all their genes and see what's the same and what's different, but the best way to do it is to actually pick a gene, first of all, that's in common between a lot of organisms that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So the one that's actually used a lot is this uh, gene for what's called ribosomal RNA. 
So we don't need to go into what exactly that is. I know I'm just looking at me already. Like. No, I like it. I, I know because I'm like, oh, I know these words. I can maybe say something kind of smart. Um, but essentially, ribosomal RNA is required to make protein. So yeah. if, if you're a living thing, you make protein, you have this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you know that all living things have this in common, okay, that's a good place to start if you're looking at genetic differences between yeah. all these things. And we also know that ribosomal RNA is so important and so functional, like every piece of ribosomal RNA has like a very defined function that if you start to mutate the gene for it mm-hmm. a little bit, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So mutations in ribosomal RNA genes are really rare. Yeah. So you can sort of use it as a molecular clock. It's mm-hmm. called where you sort of um, are saying, okay, so if there's, let's say, five mutations between this and this, that translates to this many million years or yeah. 100 million years or whatever it is. So that's how you can actually quantify roughly um, how related different species are. So that's how we know that some things maybe are a couple of hundred million years an ancestor to something else. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just in case you're wondering how all these things are mm. actually figured out. So there, there, is, there are a few things that throw a spanner in the works for this, especially for bacteria, because bacteria sometimes uh, do something called lateral gene transfer, where they essentially give each other genes. Yeah. Uh, so then that kind of messes up your idea of a clock and of mutation rates and things like that, because you could have something that has the clock working fine, you could easily see... Yeah. how old it is and next thing it picks up a gene from another bacteria and goes oh thanks i'll stick that yeah, in yeah so and like yeah i think it's like for the molecular clock it's like vertical gene tra- like from your yes. like parent to offspring sort of thing yeah whereas, so normal sort of gene transfer as we think of it is vertical yeah, yeah but whereas this what you're talking about with the bacteria passing them on it's horizontal it's yes. just like one to the other yeah, yeah one to the other like here try try some of this dna you might like it <laughs> um but one thing that still blows my mind the amount of times i've heard it today from all the different lectures i watched but still is amazing that there's only one common ancestor to all eukaryotes so all eukaryotic organisms like ourselves basically anything with a nucleus has just one cell that we all came from and so this and this was after there were bacteria and loads of different types of bacteria like cyanobacteria that Anne indeed mentioned that could photosynthesize all these things and only one then diverged into all the different yeah. diversity that we see today, all the animals, the elephants, the giraffes, <laughs> literally every eukaryote. Insects. Yes, We're insects. insects. All water. those things. <laughs> There's lots of other things I'm leaving out there. Yeah, Eukaryotic <laughs> organisms are quite fungi. broad. Uh, yep, fungi too. Um, so then, why did this arise only once? So it's thought to be an extremely rare event, this whole idea of creating a eukaryotic yeah. organism. And the event that does this is something called endosymbiosis, yeah. which... Uh, biologists out there definitely would have heard of. Yes. Um, What they think happened in this endosymbiosis was you essentially had an organism called an archaea, which sort of looks like a bacterium. Yeah. And it's similar in a lot of ways. It's a little bit more advanced, I guess. Um, Honestly, I couldn't. If someone asked me the difference right now between bacteria and archaea, I'd just be like, I don't know an awful lot. Like, I know they're a different tree of life. I actually don't really know. Uh, But what they think happened was somehow a bacteria got inside one of these, an archaea, mm. uh, which is rare enough in itself. Well, don't they eat them sometimes or something like that? Yeah, I, sorry, when I mean get inside, I mean in, in that they L- lived they're within. They were alive, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but also I think eating them was rare back then as well. Yeah. I think the whole I, process of phagocytosis, which is... Engulfing. Engulfing. So phagocytosis is when one cell eats another cell, basically. That only really 
started to take off when organisms were eukaryotic already. Yeah. Uh, from what I was looking at today, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so how did it get inside at all? We don't even know that. And then if something gets inside another organism, usually it doesn't last too long because yeah. if they don't work together, they die. Mm. Um, so the amount of times this might have happened and gone nowhere, it's probably a lot of times. Yeah. So then for it to actually, both of them, whatever genes they had, whatever proteins they were making, they could collaborate and one could live inside the other. Apparently it's rare enough to only ever happen once in the history of life on Earth. I'm sorry, uh, I just need to vote in because I'll just start laughing so much. But Killian is on the edge of his seat. I, I He's am, so excited. I, I am on we the edge of his seat. We were just talking about it before, about how he keeps moving closer. Yeah, I think that's, that's the problem. I keep leaning closer and then my voice is way louder. And my voice is louder anyway. That's why you can't see your setup, obviously. I'm sitting further away from the mic than Amandine because of how loud I am. And he keeps And now I keep leaning forward. Okay, now I'm going to lean back and be casual. No, don't be casual. And Let's talk go. about the origin of life no, and not get too excited. <laughs> It um, is an exciting topic. To it is an exciting topic, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, Nick Lane talks a lot about this endosymbiosis event and how it led to um, a massive increase in energy um, that was available to these new eukaryotic cells that mm. had a, essentially a bacterial cell inside a bigger cell. And for those wondering um, what the context is for us, you might have heard of mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. Uh, yeah. that's, Do we say that here? Uh, like, I feel like... Is it an American thing? I don't know. I've heard it a lot in secondary school, too. Was I told? I feel like I wasn't told that in secondary school. Really? I, and I just saw it like, online. And then it's just like a joke when you Yeah, like, it's here, kind it's of a like big, a, big joke in the biology community. Like, the, whenever you're talking about the mitochondria, you have to say <laughs> it's the powerhouse of the cell. But it really is. Yeah, um, no, and that's sort of what Nick Lane's whole thing is about, how much of a powerhouse it is. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that I met this guy, Nick Lane. So if you're listening... Hey, <laughs> remember me? Uh, he doesn't remember me. Uh, I met him at the Schrodinger conference, actually, where he spoke. And uh, yeah, because there was an event that we were both at. And he actually came up to me and some other students and was like, how's it going? I'm Dr. Nick Lane. And I was like, oh my God, you're the guy who wrote that book that I didn't read. Uh, I, did, I didn't say that at the time. And I did read it later. Anyway, that was just a did little, little bit of a tangent. I thought you haven't read it. I've read most of it. <laughs> okay. I didn't read the whole thing. I read most of it and I've seen enough lectures of his online now to say that I, I think I've pretty much read it. Um, Fair enough. So, yeah, so that's how sort of the mitochondria got in, into us and that, into eukaryotic organisms through this endosymbiosis event, yeah. which was very rare. So, like, another um, idea was this, was by... Uh, Lynn Margolis, I think it was. I, I can't remember how you pronounce her name, Lynn Margolis, uh, where she came up with serial endosymbiosis theory, um, which is essentially saying the complex life um, is just a series of these endosymbiosis events over and over. But Nick Lane sort of disputes this because yeah. uh, there's only, as far as we know, one common ancestor for all of eukaryotic life, so that couldn't really be the case where this kept happening. Um, but then for Wait. things like photosynthesis, sorry, yeah? You know, just because when you're saying serial, does that not mean like over and over again? Yes. So sh surely you would have one cell with like, I don't know, like 10 small cells inside? Like that's when I, when you say mm. serial, that's what I think of. Is that yeah. what you mean? Well, well, uh, there, well, a lot of our cells, well, they do have lots of mitochondria in them. Some cells have, you Oh, know, as in they're so, saying that each mitochondria is a different yeah, cell? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, uh, that there are loads of different okay, endosymbiosis okay, yeah, events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now, uh, yeah, our evidence suggests that it only happened once. 
But then you might be wondering for something like a chloroplast, so for those who know like about plant cells, um, they have something called a chloroplast, which is also based on a bacterium. Mm. Um, so how did that get in there? And what Nick Lane suggests is that endosymbiosis got easier after the first endosymbiosis event, because yeah. then you could have things like phytocytosis. So it's no longer this, you know, once in the history of the world event. And that's why you have different things like different types of cyanobacteria getting into plants to promote photosynthesis. Yeah, so the, kind of the bacteria is the thing that does the photosynthesis as opposed yeah, to the exactly. plant itself. Yeah. Even though it's not a bacteria, now it's chlorophyll. Yeah, it's no longer a bacteria, but it evolved from this bacteria yeah. that entered into a cell. Yeah. But the real amazing one was the first time it happened, because that was difficult. But then once the cell already had the mitochondria or this other organism inside it, it was much easier for and other organisms to get inside it because of the energy increase. I don't really remember exactly what it is. It's something like, so if the first cell is like engulfing the smaller one. Yes. Is The, the smaller one is doing some sort of chemical reaction that's like feeding the bigger one or something yeah exactly but then what does the big one do for the small one i can't remember um yeah so what they think the sort of evolutionary trade-off was for this endosymbiosis event and for the other endosymbiosis events that led to chloroplasts and mm. uh, plants being able to photosynthesize as a result um they think the evolutionary trade-off was the smaller one would actually be sort of protected so it wouldn't yeah. need to worry about creating a cell wall creating some sort of defense system to protect itself okay, against other yeah, yeah. competition it would be happy it's in a cell, the cell is doing everything for it in a way that it needs to get mm-hmm. done. Even protein synthesis and things like that can be handled by the bigger cell. Okay. But then the bigger cell has uh, the advantage of now it has a little cell inside it that's doing a lot of work for it, that's making a lot of energy, and it doesn't need to go around eating as much. Yeah. Um, so one amazing thing then as well that he talked about in some of his lectures um, was the idea that this really opened up the possibility of complexity because... Um, he sort of suggested with more genes, uh, you know, there's more energy that you need to use to yeah. make the proteins that those genes mm-hmm. encode. Like, that just sort of makes sense. If you want to make loads of different proteins, that they don't just come from nowhere. So mm-hmm. you either need to eat a lot um, <laughs> or have something inside you that knows how to um, deal with the energy from you eating yeah. a bit better. So that's what these bacteria did, the mitochondria, they were able to use this energy a lot better through this process that I'm not going to go into called oxidative phosphorylation. Um, and that's, that process um, is something that Nick Lane focuses on and it's his idea for how complex life evolved. Um, because in a very basic term, how this, and how this oxidative phosphorylation works, this thing that creates this vast amount of energy, is it moves protons along a gradient. So let's say you have a lot of protons outside a cell membrane and few protons within the cell membrane. So because of entropy, what I said before, you want disorder. You don't want things to be ordered in one camp and another. You want things to generally be disordered everywhere. So, So for you to have a lot of protons outside your cell and very few in, that's not something that's gonna be energetically very favorable. So what has evolved is you have this pump that sort of allows protons to get in where they want to go because of entropy. Um, but as they go through this pump, they create energy through this ATP synthase. Yeah. That's the name of the pump. Um, <laughs> and this pump makes ATP, which is an energy currency in cells. And I won't go into that aspect. Yeah. But essentially, it makes loads of energy through moving protons around. I hate that they say ATP is an energy currency, as a currency. Yeah. It makes a, no a weird... sense. It makes no sense to me. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of makes sense. How do you pay for it? You don't pay for it. 
I don't know. It just when every whenever I hear the it's, word it's currency, I've, I've forgotten yeah. about it actually. Yeah. And every time I hear the word currency, I'm just like, oh, I don't know why. It just yeah. bugs me. <laughs> but um, Nick Lane's idea for how this complexity then emerged, like where did it come from? Why did the sender symbiosis happen at all? Because it's so rare. And um, he thinks it's going to have something to do with um, alkaline vents, which were only discovered in the year 2000 by actually a PhD student who's on. Uh, an underwater expedition in this research submarine was looking out the window and said to their supervisor what's that because it looked like a weird vent that they hadn't yeah. seen before um, and it was this alkaline vent so you ha- alkaline means there's not a lot of protons um, and then acidic means protons, protons. <laughs> so um, so if the sea is more acidic than this alkaline vent then you have this sort of natural proton gradient already so maybe cells in that environment could yeah. maybe take advantage of proton gradients because they already lived in one. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just thought it was a, it's a very interesting idea um, of how complex life sort of emerged. I, I, I hope that wasn't too technical. No, but, that was uh, good. But also, I think it's just important to say how different eukaryotic cells are from prokaryotes. Like yeah. Bacteria, even though they are really good at a lot of things, like, for example... Um, evolution they can evolve really fast to let's say beat our antibiotics that's why you have yeah. antimicrobial resistance and all these other things um, but there's only so far they can go because of their limited uh, energy capacity like they will never be able to evolve multicellularity like they can't become big organisms like us that have different yeah. cells that carry out different functions they're going to be even though they can work together they can't do it in the same way that complex creatures like us can yeah. um, they also can't carry out things like phagocytosis very well um, because they just don't have the energy to be able to move particular parts of their cell in order to like create this shape that can engulf and eat yeah. other cells too well. And there's just lots of other things on a biochemistry level that they just will not be able to ever do. So I think yeah. it's pretty amazing that just because this one event, you know, eukaryotes can do all these things that they can't. But yet, we're both still here. It's not like one beat the other. Yeah. They're, they're both good at different things and... That's why life in so many different forms exists. It's all about you being good at something niche. I think that's also yeah, something that's niche. really cool yeah. to talk about in terms of evolution of life. Every single life form out there exists because it filled a niche. Yeah. It's doing something that other organisms didn't do, at least for a time. Mm-hmm. And then if other organisms did do it, they're now in competition. Yeah. But uh, at some point, they were filling a niche. And that's just cool to think any creature you can think of is doing something a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking when you're saying that, you know, bacteria, there's something about them growing bigger or like they can't grow bigger than they are because it's not about energy, though. I think it's something about like diffusion. Oh, uh, yes. The surface I, area and that sort of thing. Yeah, so surface I, area. I think I, yeah, part of it is, yeah, because they rely on and um, so they, they do rely on some gradients to an extent, their yeah. surface area and them taking in certain chemicals, which is based on this surface area. Yeah, that's They can only is. grow so big because, because... if they get any bigger, their surface area... Yeah, wouldn't increase to the same extent, and therefore the they'd have to work too hard just, just to stay yeah. alive. I just yeah. remember that, and I was yeah. like, that's so cool. That, that I didn't realise that. Because I, I remember seeing some video, on it actually, of like how big could you make a bacteria in theory. Mm. It's actually not that big. Because <laughs> uh, the thumbnail for this video was obviously like someone standing next to like a giant bacteria that was like bigger than a house. And I was like, this wouldn't be possible. It's like, oh, well, you got to click on the video anyway. Um, you know, I should have known that. But anyway. Anyways, yeah, so now that we've done like all the sort of molecular stuff, this is like on a bigger scale. Um, so we're going to go back to our cyanobacteria. 
And um, it's just really interesting, I think, that a lot of the big sort of evolutionary steps and changes that happened coincided with, like... I don't know, like geological changes, like continents mm. moving, changes in the as in the as in the as. Okay, that was so weird. Yeah. We just realized when we were recording that it just stopped recording. I yeah. started repeating. I was trying to say atmosphere, and it's like at me, at me, at me. <laughs> but we thought we'd leave it in because it's kind of funny. But it went on for way longer than that. It was on yeah. for a while. Yeah, we we did get into the next kind of topic, so I guess we're just gonna repeat that. Yeah. So I was saying that um, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that changes in sort of no evolu- big evolutionary changes coincided with changes in the atmosphere and the environment and the continents moving, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That was basically, I'm pretty sure where we were at. Um, and so um, I was saying how snowball Earth was a big event, and that's basically <clears throat> like ice ages. And- yeah, the Earth got covered in ice and yeah. snow. And uh, I was saying then that every time I hear Ice Age, I just think of the movie, which is so bad as a scientist, because I should be thinking, you know, massive global evolutionary event. But I just think of, like, Manny the Mammoth. <laughs> which is probably why it started recording, because it was like, then us just having a conversation about Ice Age. <laughs> yeah, so it's probably a good thing that I stopped recording. Anyway, so there was a big supercontinent that was around before the... Pangea? Um, no. No. Not Pangea, oh. but that is the big supercontinent that everyone knows. Um, yeah. The continents have been moving since like yeah. Earth started, which it was a very long time. I think it's like four billion years, or is that made up? Something around like four billion years ago, I think, was when the Earth start, started forming. But anyways, there was this big supercontinent. So that's just where all the continents on the Earth were together. And then that meant, as I was saying earlier about the cyanobacteria, they lived on the edges of continents. So mm. when they're all together, there's not that much edge. You know, yeah, it's just yeah. around the outside. And then when the continents start moving apart and breaking apart, you get more space. M- yeah, more space. And so there's more cyanobacteria that can grow at these in these like shallow waters at the edge. And like we said earlier, that increases the oxygen level. So there was this massive, so this massive increase in oxygen level and a big decrease in CO2 because they take in CO2 from the atmosphere. And I'm sure we all know, we've all heard of global warming (laughs) and how we don't want CO2 in the atmosphere because it's heating it. So when we have these cyanobacteria taking it in, it's cooling the atmosphere, it's making Mm. it colder and then ice can start forming at the poles. And as the ice spreads, um, there's this thing, it's the albedo effect. It's basically like the sunlight shines on the white ice and it gets reflected so ah, it doesn't yeah. heat the earth so that also cools and all these like different factors yeah, that, basically that's why it's so terrible that the ice is melting as well because it's going to make things even harder. even warmer yeah 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 so yikes so and we're also can i just say a shout out to all the cyanobacteria and other organisms out there everyone's always talking about trees how many yeah. plant more trees what about cyanobacteria? What about all the things in the ocean? They take up a crazy amount of CO2. Yeah, they get no do. credit. They don't get credit, but that's because we can't see them. We only give credit to things you can see. It's that's terrible. just, yeah, I know. Anyways, <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to go back to what I was saying. <laughs> um, there was this big explosion of life called the Cambrian explosion. I've heard of that one. Now, yes. By the way, I haven't done geology, which is why I'm not so. Aware of, aware of these things, things as, as much as I'm doing this. I made the mistake of doing foundation physics in first year. <laughs> I'm, that, maybe that's something for another episode, but it's, it scared me. Anyway. I'm, I didn't do phys- Oh, yeah. Maths, no. Okay. I don't even know if physics is... We won't get into it. Cambrian explosion, that's what I know, kind of. Um, 
So basically after Snowball Earth, big explosion of life, lots of different stuff, weird creatures happen, like we're, we might show you photos you might put on our Instagram or something Dave yeah, there's always idea. like paintings yeah follow of... our Instagram we're gonna put cool photos of yeah. creepy exploding creatures <laughs> so there's this sort of one area of where there's like lots of Cambrian I suppose fossils found It's and they're known as the Ediacara biota and so they're from around 600 500 million years ago I think I don't know the dates are all they're just so long ago how can you know but they were actually single-celled soft body organisms so it's really well i don't know if it's strange or it's i suppose it's rare that's something that soft bodies bodied gets preserved fossilized yeah, yeah, th- yeah that, that's one thing i remember from first year being fascinated by it because when we're talking about all these old creatures and what we think they look yeah. like and stuff you know we think oh sure there's going to be fossils for yeah. the reason that there are so many missing links in the tree of life is because the the, How did the, you get the, from one point to the other? Yeah, like, like the possibility of something being fossilized is so, so rare. Yeah. It has to be in something that's kind of like mud-like consistency. It yeah. has to be undisturbed for a massive period yeah, of time. Yeah, if you die, you can't be like, scavengers can't come and eat you and stuff. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of later because at this time, there's no scavenger. There's no, they're your single cells. So, and oh, yeah, there's, and no, there's no eating, buddies, there's no, nothing no, like that. No predators. The, yeah, the only vibes. way you're getting, <laughs> just vibes. <laughs> to apologize um but um, you apologize yeah i true. make no apologies but these ediacaran uh sort of organisms they we actually don't even know if they're plants or animals well maybe they figured it out in the past three years i don't know but uh from what i remember they don't know what they are and they kind of disappear oh so they're sorry they were kind of pre-cambrian explosion like just on the edge and then sort of after the cambrian explosion happened they disappeared um and then during this explosion you you start getting um, like sh- uh, shelly fossils like hard parts skeletons so mm. you're not just like a soft shell anymore or a soft cell anymore mm. you can have shells and spines and things like that and like we were so they're s- much more likely to be preserved which exactly. is part of the reason why they think the Cambrian explosion maybe wasn't as much of an explosion of life as yes. much as an explosion of life that gets more easily fossilized and also explosion sounds like oh it just happened like really Overnight. quick and yeah no Explosion in evolutionary time is a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this only took a couple of million years. Yeah, um, I don't know how many years it yeah, was. I'm but... just throwing the figure out yeah. there, that's what we seem to be doing today. <laughs> yeah, it actually is. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, they kind of, they start, we start seeing modern sort of ancestors. So we think that our life forms came from this Cambrian explosion. You start seeing invertebrates and things like corals and sponges. And then we get into multicellular life. So this is unlike our single cells, lots of cells working together. And I was just thinking about this the other day because I actually don't really get it. How cells can work together. How do you... Because cells, how do they stick together? I was actually really confused. I was like, how can I not just pull my skin off? Because there's space... (laughs) Because they're not all connected. It's not like... There's like extracellular space... Yeah, or I, but I think there's a lot of like adhesins and different proteins like that that they're functioning. They're like to, sticking together. Yeah, that's yeah. sort of. Yeah, so yeah. I was thinking as well, but I, that was lots, a very lots satisfying of chemicals, answer. chemical signaling going on, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, anyways, we start getting multicellular uh, organisms, and uh, if I'm going to try out a date, it's going to be 542 million years ago. <laughs> oh, I was thinking exactly that. Yeah. I, I was just, like, if I had to pick a number, <laughs> that would be the number you'd pick. So, yeah, and they start, when you get multicellular, that's when, like, oh, uh, so things, many... Things really start taking yeah, off then. They actually, they actually do. Uh, so many niches can be filled. Um, you get lots of adaptations and advantages. And 
this is when you start seeing the predator prey relationship so instead of just being like lying there and just floating about waiting for some sort of chemical or mineral to float past you that you absorb uh you can what a life yeah (laughs) you're just sitting there on a rock like um now you can start attacking things slash being eaten yeah like it's scary and thrilling yeah and one of the really famous cambrian organisms is the trilobite do you know what that is? Oh, yeah. It kind of one looks like One of my a... friends was absolutely obsessed with trilobites. Yeah. They did geology with you. And uh, they just love trilobites. I actually remember that. Yeah. Um, they kind of look like, I suppose, like wood lice kind yeah. of a bit. Like they have that sort of exoskeleton yeah, but sort they're of a bit bigger, bigger than... Yeah, it dep- like well, that. it Some depends on... Massive. Yeah, the, the sizes, yeah, they, they do change. Um, and again, you get sort of behaviours like grazing and burrowing. So burrowing maybe to eat or to hide from predators and things like that and um there's some really famous fossils from sort of the mid-cambrian which are the burgess shale fossils and there's a load of them because basically they well they think that it was some sort of rapid burial so maybe there was like a landslide thing under the sea i don't know if it's called a landslide if it's under the sea but some sort of situation where a load of rocks fell down or a load of like silt and stuff and it just covered mm. them all straight away so they got like preserved oh, okay. in their sort of everyday life yeah kind of yeah sorry maybe it's a bit sad <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and there's lots of different types there's this one um i'm gonna i'll attempt to pronounce it i was looking at it now i was like do i say what it's called or not on, because go. <laughs> but i will Anim- animal lacaris <laughs> Okay, you butchered it. An- no, okay. no an- animal lacar. Yeah, okay, never mind. We'll show you a picture somewhere. But it's basically, it was like half a meter long. It was a predator and it had these like appendages. Maybe I'll explain it because I do know what it looks like. It had these like, they kind of look like octopus arms sticking out of it. But mm. I'm pretty sure they had an exoskeleton on it and they had like the hard shell. And they just picked things up with these like tentacle thingies and ate them. They wow. were predators. Mm. Um, and it was also in this period that you get... The pikaya, which is, it look, kind of looks like a fish situation mm. and it has an internal notochord. Do you remember what a notochord is? I remember the word, I don't remember. Yeah, same. I, I was hoping you'd remember so you could explain. It's basically like a primitive, like it, kind of like a spinal cord situation. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's like. From developmental biology. We yeah, that, so it, it like. It, that's a scary notion. It connects from the head, like the head part, and it runs down the back of the, the body of the. Mm. the animal so it kind of looks like a weird fish situation it's not even a fish it looks more like an eel it was was smaller as well I'm pretty sure and people think that this could be the first vertebrate so common ancestor yay it was a fish well it wasn't a fish it's not a fish sorry (laughs) I don't think it's a fish but it was was fishy eely (laughs) fishy yeah and then um, so then after that we start going into fish no, I'm pretty sure. So start things started coming on land. Now this is me guessing because now I can't remember. Oh, yeah, that meme going around like that? Like it's all because of you. That's that organism that's like going onto land for the first time. That oh, thing. I just remember. Sorry, I remember reading a book of like a fish. It was like where life came from, and it was like this fish that got on, was like on land, and he was just like, "I'm never playing truth or dare with you again, George," or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny. But yeah, so fish. The first fish actually didn't have jaws. The evolution of jaws was pretty revolutionary when it comes mm. to the whole fish situation and they became really active predators so high on the food chain and then you start getting plants on land which is mm. a big change and that actually led to 
um, a big rise in O2 levels because mm. obviously, so they obviously had all land. There was no, um, no animal life or like. Yeah, it's just the yeah. Plants it was up just there, plants that, think, that yeah. yeah. It was just plants, and um, <laughs> sorry, so just the plants on land, and so they had so many niches they could, and there was nothing to kill them. So they would take in lots of CO two, give out a lot of O two through photosynthesis, and usually what happens is when like when a plant like today when a plant dies you have things that break it down like little microorganisms and fungi and all this and that releases the co2 back into the atmosphere so that Mm. ideally it would be an equal intake and output of co2 Mm. but back then they didn't have real in the place yeah Yeah. so they they were everywhere and they could take in all the co2 and all the oxygen that led to all the temperature changes that we were kind of talking about earlier but then when you you i think the first animals sort of situation with that came on land were like insects or mm. like arachnids are they're not they're not insects are they no i think they're different i don't know i think they're different um, well i'm pretty sure i i lost a pub quiz over that but it doesn't matter. <laughs> we won't get into it um but um yeah and they could grow really big have you ever seen those pictures of like the giant insects Yes. They're, they, they're I think horrifying. there's like, they look like uh, dragonflies or something. Yeah. And I think yeah. they're like 60 or 70 centimeter like mm. wide wings. Um, and the reason that they could grow so big was because of this really, really high oxygen level. Mm. Because the way, they don't breathe the same way as us. They um, basically have this sort of diffusion situation where like the more oxygen there is, the further it can put into their bodies. Yeah. I think, or they breathe through little holes or something on the side of their right. bodies. Um, and there was like this massive, I don't know what it was called. It looked like a centipede. It was like two meters long. Like, oh, yes, so, I did see that. They're think, yeah. so, so big. Um, well, I, when I say I saw, I saw it in a documentary, I think. I think there was a David Attenborough documentary on <laughs> Yeah, that I think there actually was as well. And, uh, and I remember one of the fossils he showed, I think it was from the Cambrian explosion, was like of one organism eating another to sort of show the, or was that after Yeah, that? no, that's Cambrian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where he was like, look, this one was actually preserved in the act of eating, so we know that predation was happening oh, yeah. around that. I've yeah. actually seen that. Yeah, it was yeah. really cool. The fossils are actually really cool. Yeah, when when really I was good. doing geology, I was like, no way, no. I Again, I should have done geology. It's a, it was actually really good. Yeah. Highly recommend. I, everyone who did geology in first year tells me I'm, I'm missing out. Yeah, so, uh, it was actually really fun, and it gives you a good overview of like where life, like where life came from and stuff. And I know I didn't, re- I obviously didn't really go into the geology part of it and stuff, but we did learn about all. The, there was like five massive extinctions, and like I said, they coincided with you know different heatings and cooling of the planet, and like how the continents move and things like that. And we even learned that like you know there's like the magnetic field oh, on yeah. here that it switches from oh, yeah, like I one way that. to another. Yeah crazy stuff i didn't like i didn't know that was a thing um so it was really good um it was really hard to learn off all the rocks though to be fair Mm. um (laughs) yeah but at least you didn't have to do second year chemistry that was yeah no that's dark i'm so glad i didn't have to do that i mean i feel like i've learned a good bit but that whole thermodynamics thing the entropy and stuff i feel like i really got a grasp of it in second year Mm. because i kind of had to yeah Um, (laughs) well i got to look at rock colors or like really thin sheets of rock under a microscope and they shine and they I just had to remember this colour matches this name. <laughs> it does sound a bit nicer. <laughs> yeah, and one of our lecturers came in and, oh, this is actually, it was a very memorable lecture, to be fair. He came in, he was such a lovely lecturer, he was really nice, and he um, he brought in, like, a lunchbox, 
and I was like, oh, this is so sweet. Like he, he didn't have time to eat his lunch. So he's like, and he has his little lunch box with him. And then he was like, oh, I brought my lunch with me. And then he starts opening it up and like, was he was like, <laughs> no, he was filming his lunch onto the, was he filming it or was he, I think he was just holding it. And he was like, okay, so today we're going to learn about like, like atomical structures in the rock. And each like item he had, like he had like the bread and the butter and they were different wow. like atoms and stuff. And then he had like banana for potassium, like in his sandwich with lettuce and all. And yeah. everyone was like, oh, <laughs> and you could see the butter everywhere. But we remembered it. And yeah, yeah it so worked. it was good. Um, this is kind of off topic, but I think we're kind of coming to the end. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, this is a yeah. good way to end on this uh, banana rock sandwich bread. kind of situation. Yeah, and obviously life goes on there's more to that so we may potentially someday go further from there it's very deep ending life goes on it does go on i mean yeah oh yeah and i I did sort of mention i was going to mention some of the experiments so yeah i think in nick lane's lab and in some other labs he was saying they're actually doing these experiments where they have situations that mimic those in those alkaline vents and other situations where they're just so this long-running experiment some of them are very expensive he said so it's very hard to get funding to just yeah. say, can I just run this experiment for ages to see if life happens? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's difficult to get funding mm. for. But they're running some replicants, and because it is such a rare event, it's possible that some of these studies, if they go on for long enough, one day the scientists will look in and go, damn, there's you life in there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's not impossible that we'll sort of find out that one of these hypotheses for how life arose is actually true. It could, mm. it could actually arise. And an interesting point as well to mention is because that whole endosymbiosis event was so rare, it might be that if we find life on other planets, it's much, much, much more likely to be prokaryotic life. So like bacteria and that sort of thing. The the probability of finding complex life is even more remote. It's so, so, so rare. So it's kind of weird to think if we find aliens, aliens, it's probably going to be just bacteria looking things, which is not as exciting. The, the second aliens was in air quotes, but she obviously can't see the air quotes. But you can tell by the way I was saying, I was like, aliens, you know? It's, it's sort of in the, in the way I yeah, say true, it. Yeah, true, true, fair hope. enough. Yeah. So <laughs> I was I'm just thinking, note. I was like, imagine you're listening and he just says alien twice. twice. And you're yeah. like, what? <laughs> but um, yeah, like, then from there, obviously there was like, Oh, it's just, it's, it actually is really exciting. Like, I know... It's an exciting the, topic, yeah. The, the we were, This one we were talking about before we even sat down to record, because yeah. we were just so excited to talk about it, but then we tried to... The way they were able to, like, learn yeah. to lay eggs on land, and, mm. you know, all these innovations and things. It's just, it was, it's actually... Evolution's it's, great. It is really cool. I think evolution is something that we actually, we really enjoy yeah, talking so, about. Yeah, something we both have in common as a scientific topic that we both love. Yeah, and it's also because you can't know, I think I like it because you can't really know the answer. Like, you can make a really good guess hmm. but you can't I don't know it's yeah and just the whole thing of like no biology actually makes any sense until you understand evolution yeah like I remember even in secondary school <clears throat> all biology was just learning things off essentially yeah. it was stuff that I found interesting to learn of but that's all it was there was very little understanding whereas suddenly when you understand what evolution is and that's how life does all these things mm. you actually start to really understand these things rather yeah. than just learn them it's, yeah, so it yeah. is. It's a really, really. If you have any topic. interest in biology, would would recommend <clears throat> reading into some evolution. Uh, <laughs> that that book what was it Nick? What's his well, name? Well, that that one's also <laughs> very good, but I, I think even evolution more broadly to start with. Yeah. Uh, to go into Nick Lane's book, uh, the vital question, I would recommend maybe a little bit more of a biology background. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, I'm sure if you just like Google some lectures on evolution, or if you want to see Nick Lane's lectures, he explains his stuff quite well. Yeah. Uh, would recommend. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's us for today, guys. Thank yeah. you so much for, listening. for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, we'll talk to you next time, I suppose. Yep. See you then. Bye.